from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello and welcome to Behind the Horror. Scary movie fans such as myself will hear that a movie is based on a true story. A few of them we know, but most, well, we never really go on to find out just what that true story is. So in this series, we explore and find out exactly what the true story is behind the movies we love. Special thanks as always to some of my patrons, John, Judy, David, Bree, Brandy, Cassandra, Galen, Gabrielle, Emily, Emma, Nanette, Sophie, Sarah, Teresa, Florence, Robert, Katerina, Hammer, Janice, Freddie, Sam, and Catherine. Thank you so, so much. You are truly appreciated. The 2008 movie, The Strangers, starts us off immediately in the opening credits with a narrator telling us that the movie is based on true events. He tells us that, quote, according to the FBI, there are an estimated 1.4 million violent crimes in America each year, end quote. He then tells us that on the night of February 11th, 2005, our two main characters, Kristen McKay and James Hoyt, left a friend's wedding reception and returned to the Hoyt family's summer home. He tells us, quote, the brutal events that took place there are still not entirely known, end quote. We then hear a truck start in what appears to be the driver of that truck driving through a nice, established, what looks like an upper middle class neighborhood, passing house after house. Then the screen goes black and we hear a 911 operator asking what the emergency is. We hear what sounds like a young male voice, clearly in a state of panic, saying, quote, there are people here, end quote. We then see two boys standing beside their bikes as the camera pans across a truck windshield that has a sizable busted hole in it. As the scared voice begins to give the operator the information, we visually see the two boys slowly begin to approach the house, its front door wide open as they climb the steps to the porch. They enter the residence and see a record player playing with a single record still spinning what appears to also be rose petals all over the floor along with a bloodied knife. We are also shown blood splatter on a wall, a shotgun laying on the kitchen counter, just as we hear the young boy's voice say, quote, there's blood everywhere, end quote. We then cut to our two main characters having a rather solemn moment as we find out that Kristen has rejected James's proposal of marriage. 
It is a somber situation as she sees rose petals around that James and a friend had placed, setting the scene for what was supposed to be a very big night. And because she has refused his proposal, they begin speaking about sleeping in separate areas of the house. And though it's very late at night, James goes to make a private phone call to his friend and leaves him a voicemail telling him to come pick him up from the house as soon as he wakes up, that the evening had not gone the way he had planned at all. Kristen and James begin to kind of awkwardly talk to each other as Kristen tells him that she just simply isn't ready. They begin to hug, it appears they're making up, when there is a loud knock at the door. This has startled them as James says it must be four in the morning. They answer the door to see a young lady whose face is really almost completely obscured by the darkness of night, asking if Tamara is there. They politely tell her that she has the wrong house. The girl then asks them if they're sure, to which they reply yes. They apologize and she leaves. Then James decides to make a run to the store to get Kristen some more cigarettes as he lights a fire for her in the fireplace before he heads out. Kristen drinks a beer, wanders around the house, and even tries on the engagement ring that James had gotten her, thus getting it stuck on her finger. Then suddenly, there is another very loud knock at the door. Kristen asks, Hello? And it becomes obvious that it is the same girl asking if Tamara is home. Kristen tells the girl that she had already been there asking that. Kristen then attempts to open the chimney flue as the smoke from the fire is making the smoke detector go off. Now, as she deals with the smoke detector's alarm, there is another very loud banging at the front door, which scares Kristen. And understandably nervous, Kristen calls James to tell him that the girl had come back to the house and that she really wanted to know where he was. She asked James to stay on the phone with her until he got back, but the phone line went instantly dead. Now really beginning to become scared, Kristen lights a cigarette and stands in the kitchen dining room area trying to stay calm just as you see the silhouette of a figure with a white mask or bag over his face in the dark, shadowy distance behind her. But instead of the man in the mask attacking her right then and there, well, he doesn't. This lets the viewer know immediately that the kill isn't what the bad guys are after. It's the suspense. They're feeding off her fear. There is more banging around the house, and Kristen knows that someone is definitely in their secluded house. So she grabs a knife and begins creeping around the house, trying to pinpoint what it is that's causing the noises. She finds the cut phone line and knows that she is in serious trouble. She is completely terrified. She opens some curtains only to see the masked man right up against the window, slapping his open hand against the glass, making her scream. She runs to hide in a bedroom as more noises can be heard, but James miraculously returns and things get quiet for a bit. And through tears, Kristen tells James about all she has experienced. So what happens next? 
Well, for those of us who have seen the movie already know, and for the rest of you, well, I highly recommend this movie. It's actually pretty scary. It's definitely worth seeing at least once. Now, this movie is, according to the writer and director, Brian Bertino, very loosely based on three scenarios. The true story behind the book Helter Skelter, written by Vincent Bugliosi and Kurt Gentry, in other words, The Manson Murders. It was also inspired by the unsolved Ketty Cabin Murders of 1981 out of California. Finally, an incident that happened to Brian himself when he was just a kid is the third example. So this is a whole lot of back information to go through, and we're going to start with Brian's childhood experience. So when he was a child, and I'm not entirely sure his exact age, but at least old enough to be left home alone, he and his sister were home while his parents were out of the house. Now, someone knocked on their door and his younger sister answered. There were people at the door asking for someone that didn't live in their home. After she told them that no one by that name lived there, the people left with no incident. Brian would later learn that those very people had been doing this to several houses, looking for homes with no one inside and had been breaking into them and robbing them. Then the next is the unsolved Ketty Cabin Murders, which is rather disturbing and still, I guess, technically an unsolved case from 1981. So let's start with some backstory. So sources say back in 1980, 34-year-old Glenna Suzanne, or just Sue, Sharp, after enduring an abusive marriage to her husband, James, who was in the Navy, she decided to take herself and her five children and leave him. They had been living in Connecticut when Sue made her decision and she relocated them to the opposite side of the country to the town of Quincy in the Sierra Nevada area of Northern California. There, she and the children rented a small trailer that her brother had previously been living in. Her children were 15-year-old John, 14-year-old Sheila, 12-year-old Tina, 10-year-old Rick, and 5-year-old Greg. That fall, she and the children moved into a rental cabin at the Ketty Resort, cabin number 28. The area was absolutely beautiful, heavily forested with great trout fishing and great walking trails. There was a lodge restaurant that was usually always busy with visitors from afar who enjoyed dining on locally hunted barbecued bear ribs, basted raccoon steaks, and fine wine. The family were truly grateful to be living in such a wonderful and somewhat remote location. Sue was apparently taking typing classes, and the children were acclimating in their new school. Life became quiet and pretty predictable for about five months. So on April 11th, 1981, in the late morning, Sue... 14-year-old Sheila and 5-year-old Greg left a friend's house to go pick up 10-year-old Rick from his baseball tryouts. While driving, Sue saw her son, 15-year-old John, and his friend Dana hitchhiking to get back to Ketty, so she picked them up on her way home. Then in the mid-afternoon, witnesses saw John and Dana hitchhiking back into town to go visit friends. 
Other witnesses saw the duo in the downtown Quincy area. So later that same evening, 12-year-old Tina visited a neighbor's cabin, cabin 27, who were also new family friends, to watch some TV. Her older sister, Sheila, joined her at the friend's cabin around 8 p.m. to have a sleepover there, but Tina decided to go back home and arrived there just before 10 p.m. as she was asked to do. And then also a boy named Justin, who was also at Sue's house spending the night with her two younger boys. A witness stated that they saw John and Dana hitchhiking a ride back home between 9.30 to 10 p.m. that night as well. So this was really just typical families who had children similar in age, all wanting to hang out together. Really nothing out of the ordinary. The next morning, sometime after 7 a.m., Sheila woke up and decided to go home, which was again just next door. She walked in the front door and saw that there was blood everywhere. Her mother Sue, brother John, and his friend Dana were on the floor, tied up with electrical cord and medical tape, and they were dead. Immediately, Sheila ran from her home back to the next door neighbors to get help. So the neighbor's teenage son went to Sue's cabin to see if any of the victims were still alive. He discovered the three younger boys, Rick, Greg, and then their friend Justin, all still sleeping peacefully in their beds. The teen woke them up and had them leave out of the bedroom window so that they would not have to witness the carnage in the next room. The police soon arrived and entered the residence to begin their investigation. It was determined that Sue and her oldest boy, John, had had their throats cut, blunt force trauma to their head, and had also suffered several stab wounds. The friend Dana had also suffered intense head injuries, and he had been strangled. Sue had been gagged with her own underwear and a bandana, the two items shoved very deep down her throat, then her mouth covered with tape. Though the body didn't show any outward signs of sexual assault, she had been stripped naked from the waist down and her legs spread. Blood placement evidence indicated that her legs had been pushed back together and a blanket placed over her after. It was also quite evident that Sue had fought hard against her attacker and had defensive wounds on her hands and arms. The boys, however, did not. Whoever had murdered these people had also moved John and Dana's bodies after the fact. And then that left one more person missing, 12-year-old Tina. Now the murder weapons recovered from the scene were a hammer and two knives and then another hammer many, many years later. One of the knives had been used so brutally, so violently that it had been bent nearly in half. As the police began interviewing the neighbors, the next door neighbor stated that they hadn't heard anything during the night. Another couple who lived in a different nearby cabin reported that they had been awakened and heard what sounded like muffled screaming, but they couldn't pinpoint where it came from. They didn't know what was causing it, and so they went back to sleep. A toolbox was missing from Sue's home as well, and there didn't appear to be any forced entry. 
The phone inside the house had been taken off the hook, the curtains had been closed, and the phone cord itself had again been cut. A bloody footprint was found outside in the yard, knife marks on some of the walls within the home, and blood droplets were found on Tina's bed. The police also discovered a bloody fingerprint on a handrail leading down from the back door. Blood splatter was obviously on the floors and walls, but also the ceiling on both bedroom doors and on a railing on some outside stairs. All of this blood was tested, but none of it was from the murderer. The only piece of DNA left at the scene by the perpetrator was on a piece of tape. Other locals and neighbors claimed to have seen a green van parked at Sue's house around 9 p.m. that night. So the three surviving younger boys were all carefully questioned and all three initially stated that they simply had slept through it, though this seemed highly unlikely. Police believed that whoever had done this had been aware of the three boys being there as there had been blood found on their door. But then later, Justin, the friend of the youngest boys, stated that he had had a dream about the murders and hadn't actually witnessed them. Then apparently under hypnosis, he said that he had been awakened by scary sounds coming from the living room. Then five-year-old Greg was interviewed on the same day as his family's funerals, and he said that he had also been awakened by sounds coming from the attacks in the living room and that he and Justin had been witnesses. Then Justin began to describe not one, but two attackers. And though the police had access to actual forensic sketch artists, for some reason they used a man who had no artistic ability to draw the sketches based on Justin's descriptions. The descriptions were that the suspects were in their late 20s to early 30s, one standing about 6 foot or 1.86 meters with dark blonde hair and a mustache, wearing gold-rimmed sunglasses. The other was described as around 5 foot 8 or 1.72 meters tall with black greasy hair also wearing gold-rimmed sunglasses. Justin had also later stated that John and Dana had returned home while Sue was talking to these two men. Then somehow things just sort of exploded into violence, which woke Tina up and one of the men grabbed her and then went out the back door. But you see, when Justin was relaying this information, it was four weeks after the murders. And this particular questioning session had been recorded and most believe that the police had made suggestive comments or questions and remember he was just a pretty young boy. Though rumors began to spread that perhaps the murders had been drug related, there had been zero evidence of any drug use or any drug activity in the home whatsoever. The sheriff stated that it is believed to have been planned to a certain degree. Another neighbor, a man named Martin Smart, told the police that a claw hammer had just miraculously disappeared from his home. The sheriff said that Martin had talked a lot about clues that seemed to purposefully steer any suspicion away from him. He was the main suspect for a time, as was his friend John, or Beau, Bovaday. 
And then later, it was discovered that Martin had written a letter to his wife at the time, and a portion of it said, "Quote: I've paid the price for your love, and now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we are through. Great. What else do you want?" End quote. Now, this could possibly indicate a love triangle scenario. According to Martin, his new friend Bo was staying with him and his wife temporarily. They had just recently met at a VA clinic where both were getting help with their PTSD suffered from their time fighting in the Vietnam War. Martin stated that he, his wife, and Bo decided to go hang out at a bar and had stopped by Sue's cabin to see if she wanted to go with them, but she had respectfully declined. So they said the trio hung out at the bar, then went back home, and Martin's wife went straight to bed. Martin then said that he and Bo went back to the bar. Martin's wife stated that she saw her husband burning something in the fireplace the morning after the murders. So when they questioned Bo, he stated that he was an early retiree from being a Chicago police officer due to being shot while on duty. This was, of course, a lie, but it wasn't caught in time. Another lie from Bo was that he had never met Sue, which Martin's wife had already refuted. There is actually a transcript of Bo's recorded interview, and I'll leave the link to that below in the notes. Oh, and interestingly, Justin, the boy who gave possible witness testimony, well, he was none other than Martin's stepson. So there's that. They all were apparently polygraphed and then dropped as suspects. Both men, according to the sheriff, who also, interestingly, was just BFFs with Martin, fled the area within a day or two after the murders. And then what about Tina? Her remains were found three years later in a very rural area, nearly 100 miles from Ketty by someone collecting bottles. Now, not long after news broke of finding the remains, a phone call came into the sheriff's office, which was recorded. The man on the tape said, quote, I was watching the news and they were talking about the girl found at Feather Falls. I was just wondering if you thought of the murder up in Ketty. In Plumas County a couple years ago, there was a 12-year-old girl that was never found. End quote. Later, investigators stated that this caller knew something specific about the murders. So, former Sheriff Greg Hagwood later stated, quote, You kill three people in a cabin and you leave the remains there to be discovered. I think Tina was absolutely central to why this happened. I think there was something about Tina that could not be left there to be discovered. It is my strong sense that there's something about Tina that did not allow her to be left there. End quote. Speculation was that she had been raped, um, discovered that she was pregnant, or perhaps knew something she was not supposed to know. Bo died in 1988 and Martin died in 2006. The DNA that was lifted off of the tape was recently matched to a known and living suspect and word around the campfire is, sit down guys, 
It belonged to none other than Justin. Yes. The current investigators now believe that there could have been up to six people involved in one facet or another, including helping to cover it up. They say now that the murderers wore gloves and brought a hammer and the medical tape with them, indicating premeditation. And of course, there are the rumors that Justin and Tina were in on the murders. Really, this case is just a giant rabbit hole that one could get lost in for a very long time. So let's move on. The third and final story this movie was loosely based on is the Sharon Tate LaBianca murders committed by members of the Manson family. Now, for the purposes of time and continuity, I'm only going to touch on these specific murders and not Manson and his family story as a whole. At some point, I might visit Manson and give him his own podcast, but today is not that day. So for those of you who might not be familiar with these murders, on August 9th, 1969, four members of Manson's family cult, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwickel, and Linda Kasabian drove to Beverly Hills and up to the home of married couple Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant, and Roman Polanski. Now, Roman was out of the country filming a movie at the time, but Sharon had guests over. Her BFF, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger of the Coffee family, and Wojciech Frykowski, who was Abigail's boyfriend. There was another man staying in a pool house slash guest house on the property who also had had a visitor that night, an older teenage boy. While Linda Kasabian waited out by the car after seeing Tex shoot and kill the teenager who was in his car about to leave the residence, the other three let themselves into Sharon's house. Then they gathered Sharon, Jay, Abigail, and Wojciech up and killed them savagely. Sharon begged for the life of her baby that could have most certainly survived out of the womb at the time. To which Susan said, quote, Look, bitch, I don't care a thing about you. You're going to die and there's nothing you can do about it. End quote. Sharon was then kept alive until all of the others were dead. Then she was stabbed repeatedly, and against popular belief, none of the wounds were inflicted in her stomach where the baby was. Nonetheless, obviously, the baby did not survive. So while Manson family members stated that Manson instructed them to murder, Manson himself did not participate in them. However, the next night, Manson took the four from the night before, as well as two others, one being Leslie Van Houten, on a drive to, quote, show them how to do it. Then after, he chose a house to hit. He walked up to the house by himself. Then after a bit of time, he did return back to the car, telling everyone he had tied up the people inside. Then Manson sent Tex, Patricia, and Leslie up to the house, though Tex would later say that he and Manson went to the house together, but again, another time. The homeowners were Lino and Rosemary LaBianca, and they were tied up. Lino was stabbed in the throat. The knife left there. He was stabbed 
12 times in total, and they carved the word war into his stomach, and he was found with a carving fork stabbed into his abdomen. Rosemary was stabbed 41 times all over her front and back. Texton apparently cleaned off his bayonet, took a shower in the home while Patricia wrote the words rise and death to pigs in the victim's blood on the walls. And really there's so much more to it than that, but you get the idea. Now, all of these victims from the cabin in Northern California to the nice homes around Los Angeles who were innocently spending a night in their own homes were under the false belief that they were safe from the violent world outside. All of them betrayed by that belief and their lives ended suddenly by sadistic people who had no need or reason to kill them so brutally. The movie The Strangers disturbs us on a deep level because, well, we all believe, for the most part, that our homes are our safe haven, that once we go inside and shut the door, we can shed our public persona, strip ourselves down to who we really are, and relax. But for just a few people, and on some random night, this is just not the case. Thank you for listening.